questions that uh, that were helpful in trying to understand where is he coming from. Maybe he understood where I was coming from and trying to find common ground to see God around us in chemistry. But I remember one of the things he said is that separate elements that seem to be completely unrelated can combine to make amazing things. And he used this example that's that we take for granted, or at least I do all the time. Like if I was here in front of you and I held up a glass of water, probably very few of us would think, boy, isn't that an amazing molecular makeup that creates water right there? And the chemical formula for water is what? H2O. Oh, wait a minute. We're full of chemistry geniuses here. Look at you guys go. H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, which are both gases combine to create water. You think, how on earth did that happen? How, that doesn't seem possible, but that's the way it works, is two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen come together and make the liquid that gives us life. And our bodies are made up of a huge portion of, of water. It just It's hard for us to get our mind around that things that can be so different can combine to create something amazing and beautiful. But if we step back and think about it for a moment, there's a lot of things in life that are that way. You think about uh, sports teams. There's sports teams that come together that may not be the greatest players individually, but when they come together, boy, they can play. And they put something together that is amazing. We see it with inventions. We see it in Christian marriage. You get two people that are really different put together with the foundations of God, then great, amazing things can happen that, we, uh, that, that are wonderful. There's a, what we're going to look at today is a song that is sort of like this. There are some elements that are completely different that come together to create something really, really amazing and beautiful. And so we're going to take a look at the history of this and take a look at this song. And this is a song that is often sang at Christmas time. Strangely enough, the words originally were written to reflect Jesus' second coming, not his first coming as a child. But we'll get to that here. So where did the song Joy to the World come from? The words come from someone named Isaac Watts. Now, how many of you know that name or have heard that name? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts wrote more than 750 hymns, including At the Cross, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, and many, many others. If you look up online... Hymns by Isaac Watts, what you're going to find is you're going to go down that list, and if you've been around Christian music for, for any length of time, you're going to look and see, oh man, there's a song I know, there's a song I know, there's a song I know, there's a song I know. And these songs come from the 1700s, most of them, and they're still popular today, and they're still sang a lot today. So Isaac Watts did something, and he put together a book called The Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. It's a long title for basically a book that is poetry that reflects some of the messages that come out of the Psalms. Now, we'll look at uh, where this, this comes from in just a second. But Joy to the World was a poem that was paraphrased, uh, Psalm 98, 4 through 9, and it was in this particular particular work. Now, I'm going to read... Psalm 98, 4-9, from the King James Version. And as I'm reading this, think about the words that you know of the song, Joy to the World, 
And think how, how closely this resembles. And here it is. Psalm 98, verses 4 through 9. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with a harp, with the harp, the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and the sound of cornet, make joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for He cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall He judge the world and the people with equity. Can you see some of the words joy to the world in there? We have to stretch quite a bit. <laughs> because it seems what Isaac Watts did is in this poem reflecting this psalm, he took considerable liberty. And from his background and his perspective, the psalms were valuable only so much as they showed the coming of Jesus. And so what he did is he takes this psalm that really doesn't speak about Jesus, at least not in this section, and he finds a way to write a poem about these words that reflect on the coming of Jesus. In other words, he plays really fast and loose with Scripture, is what he does here. But this psalm is, or this poem is published in this, uh, in this book and becomes popular. People quote it. It's set to music sometimes uh, in England. But that's about the extent of it. But there's someone else that lives in England at the same time that they did not collaborate on this song. But a guy named George Frederick Handel. Now, how many of you have heard of him? Okay, yeah, if you've ever heard of Handel's Messiah, for example, that's a, he, would, he wrote tons, a huge array of famous music, including hymns, or, operas, orchestra pieces, and many, many, many others. Just go on Wikipedia and look up George Frederick Handel, and what you'll find is just pages and pages and pages of music that he wrote. He was German, but he lived in London during this time, or most of his adult life, and uh, he was just famous for writing, again, all of this different type of music used in all sorts of different sorts of contexts. The end of the story at this point in time. But something happens approximately 80 years after Handel and uh, Watts pass away. Is There's a guy in Boston. His name is Lowell Mason. And he is a music teacher there, but he's a very successful music teacher. He writes some. He, he was the president of the, the Handel. I can't remember the name of it exactly, but it was the, a club that basically celebrated Handel's music. And he was very influential in that region during the time. And what he did is he looked at Handel's music, and he looked at Watts's lyrics, or Joy to the World, and thought, I can merge some of this together and make something beautiful. And so what he did is he wrote this tune called Antioch, is what he called it. But it's, some of it comes from Handel's Messiah, and some of it comes from some other pieces of Handel's music. And what he did is he t- paired this tune with Isaac Watts' poem and published in 1832 the version of Joy to the World that we have today. Kind of a strange thing how all of this comes together from all sorts of different angles. And what he did as well is he added an American flair to it. Because what was common, let me say it differently, European music was different than the American music. 
American music was starting to evolve on its own. And there was something that the American tunes used a lot is called a fuging tune. And what it means is one part would repeat the other part. That wasn't common in Europe. And so we'll do that sometimes. We'll sing songs that echo. There's one part that echoes another. Can you think of some like that? In the last parts of every verse of Joy to the World, you see that echoing happen. That is all American. That's not European. And so as Lowell Mason is compiling these works together, he adds this American flair there. And so what we end up with is this. The song is a powerful Christian hymn, loosely based on an Old Testament psalm, very loosely based on an Old Testament psalm, set to musical fragments composed in England and pieced by a German, pieced together in the United States with a distinctively American style. And hence, we have Joy to the World. <laughs> this, I don't know if it's accidental teamwork or what we would call this. But sometimes those type of experiments don't go very well. If you've ever studied another language, or you've studied our own language very much, is that the language that we speak, English, is a very, very unhappy relationship between the Germanic and Latin languages that converged in England. And that's why uh, we, our grammar has so many exceptions. That's why things are, how they, they're written is not how they sound oftentimes. It's, it's like, I heard it explained this way, is there were two trains, one being Latin and one being the Germanic languages, and they were on the same track and they smashed into each other, and the results were the English language. It doesn't always work exactly. And you know, we've, we've made English beautiful, but it's taken some time, and it's taken some work, and it's taken some education for us to be able to do that. But something is different here. When all of this came together in a song, Joy to the World, something beautiful was born. And consistently, Joy to the World is the most printed Christmas hymn in the United States. All of these pieces coming together. So let's take a few minutes and we're going to look at what the, term, what the song Joy to the World means to us. Because it still speaks to us. Let's look at verse 1. You have it here. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Okay, now we will sing Joy to the World here in a little bit. So if you're thinking, oh, come on, let's just sing this, all right? We're going to get there. It's going to happen today. Right, Landon? Okay, Landon, good. We're going to sing it today here in just a little bit. But you notice what he starts off with, and just let yourself be immersed in the words here. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Oh, man, this is wonderful. Look at the happiness because the king, the rightful king of earth is coming. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. And the response should be joy. Let every heart prepare him room. Because that's part of what Jesus is doing to, as he is coming. In the first coming, we'll say, with the birth, and the second coming with, with his, uh, his return. And let every heart prepare him room. We know as people that we have trouble opening our hearts up to let Jesus all the way in. We allow ourselves to be distracted by all sorts of things in this life, be discouraged by whatever's going on around us. Maybe um, Jesus is five or six or whatever down the list. And the song is calling us back to say, there's something that's exciting that's happening. 
But you've got to make room in your heart for it to see it. If you don't have room in your heart for it, you're going to miss it. It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be beautiful and it's not going to be amazing. And heaven and nature sing. You notice here is two, thing, two big aspects of life coming together. The heavens, everything that is in the sky, and nature, everything that is down here, being one and the same and coming together and singing because of the great kingdom that is being established here. Verse 2 says, Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. The second verse brings us back to a similar place. That the Savior, the King, the, the Lord that is coming is bringing joy to the earth. Because the message that he's bringing, the mission that he's bringing is something that we should be singing about. Because you look at the fields, the floods, the rocks, the hills and plains, again, that covers a whole lot of nature, doesn't it? They repeat the sounding joy. Even the earth speaks and is excited about the kingdom of God. Verse 3 says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And I can tell you guys, just by watching your faces, you're, tr- you're, gonna wa- you're wanting to sing this, right? You want, this, this just seems like this should be sung, not, not to be repeated as, as I am. We'll get there. It's coming. Look at the first, verse of, uh, verse, or the first lines of verse 3 here. No more let sin and sorrows grow. You notice the first couple of verses talk about Joy to the world, Jesus has come, heaven and nature are singing together, look at this big celebration, look at how beautiful and wonderful everything is, but the thing that's going to destroy it for you is sin and sorrow, or sin and grief, sin and bitterness that grows in you. Because that's what can happen if we do not leave room in our hearts for Jesus to come in there to work on us, then what happens is it has to be filled with something, and the other option is sin and bitterness. And those things fill our hearts and they create all sorts of disaster. And we miss out on the joy that Jesus is bringing. We miss out on all that. We can't even see it. Let men their songs employ. In other words, this is something to sing about. While fields and floods, rock hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Again, nature... Oh, excuse me, I went back to verse 2 again. Let's go back to verse 3. Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Okay, this is a reference back to Genesis 3. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, God came and spoke to them and said, there's going to be consequences and there's going to be curses because of this sin. And part of it was that there was going to be thorns that infest the ground. And Scripture doesn't say this, but my... my my guess, my understanding is reading through the context is part of the reason that's there, these thorns that are there. Maybe we can add mosquitoes to that list or anything else that makes us uncomfortable. Is that if we were too comfortable in this life, then God knows that we would not look to Him for guidance. We wouldn't have anything to pray about. We would just do our thing. So thorns and mosquitoes and whatever else that makes us uncomfortable in some level keeps us looking towards God. It keeps us looking towards something better that's going to to, uh, to come to fruition at some point in time. But you notice here, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus that is coming, has come to reverse 
all of these curses and to provide something much, much better. Jesus has come to make the blessings flow and so that these curses can be rolled back and reversed over time and taken away. And we see that in Scripture. That's part of the resurrection. That's part of the second coming of Jesus is to take those curses and do away with them. And that's something to sing about. That's something that should bring joy to the world. Verse 4 continues on and he says, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And here we go again. Is Jesus' kingdom is greater than this earthly kingdom, any earthly kingdom that we, uh, we participate in. He rules the world with truth and grace. I don't know that there's many kingdoms around the world that we could go, or nations around the world, that you look at them and say, boy, that is a place, that is a people that is full of truth and grace. We tend to struggle with that. He says, he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. In other words, God's kingdom is so much better than anything else we have right here. Now, singing this in the context of a, of a Christmas hymn, I think there's a lot of reasons why it's popular, but maybe one of them is that it brings us back to remember what's most important. <laughs> is that Jesus coming, being born, is not just him, uh, is not just this, this human person being born, being laid in a manger, and something that, there's, that makes a, a beautiful scene that we can, people put above their fireplaces or something like that. But there's something much, much greater that is happening here. Is that Jesus' kingdom is supposed to bring joy to the world. And if we don't have that, we're missing something very important. There's a few lessons that um, I've been pondering this week. Uh, First of all, um, is that maybe the greatest things we do in this life flow from who we are more than what we try to accomplish. Let me read that again. Maybe the greatest things we do in this life flow from who we are more than what we try to accomplish. I try to put myself in Paul's shoes uh, in the New Testament. It seems that he loved to be face-to-face with people. He loved to be out sharing the message of God, loved to be walking side-by-side with people, loved to be in Athens sharing about the, the resurrection of Jesus with people who didn't even understand what resurrection was, and they're so confused by it. And sitting across the table saying, I've got to tell you about this great Jesus. I've got to tell you about him, because look what he's doing. You need to follow Jesus. And then Paul finds himself in prison and house arrest on a few different occasions. Oh, man, how difficult that is. But so many of Paul's letters, imagine, he's there... Stir crazy. People are coming and going, but he's thinking, man, if I could just get out there, if I could just share the gospel with those people walking by right now, come on, God, let me out of here. Get me out of here. You know, as Paul never takes that into his own hands. He never tries to escape prison on his own. But he starts writing, and he writes letters. And maybe Paul's greatest legacy is something that he didn't think was a strength of his at all. In fact, he says, see what great letters, big letters I use because I write this in my own hand? I don't believe Paul would have ever claimed to be a wonderful writer that had all sorts of uh, just great skill that could write and just cause uh, hearts to be changed and touched. I don't think Paul would have claimed that for himself. But he found him in a situation where God took something, elements from different places, 
and put it together to make something really amazing and beautiful. I think that's so important for us to think about. If Sometimes we can walk through life thinking, oh, what am I going to accomplish? I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've, I've got to accomplish something for God. And God can use those, He can put a fire in us, He can call us. But understand that the process for us, being faithful, walking daily faithfully, being who we are is more important than anything we put our hands to. Because ultimately God's going to do something to uh, make something beautiful. That's what he did with Joy to the World. Is You have people that were famous in their own right, but the most famous thing they did was by accident. Every one of them. Here's another message that jumps out to me. Is all of us working together make a more complete perfect or good now, the New Testament talks about, it uses the term perfect. And sometimes we can misunderstand that as morally perfect as in never sinning. And I think we're missing, when we go back and look at the way that term was used, we're missing something. But what the New Testament asks of us is to be perfect in that we are people that are complete. That we look at ourselves and say, all right, uh, I know that I've got this shortcoming over here and I don't want... I've got all these good aspects over here, and I've got these good qualities, and I'm just not going to worry about this because I've got other redeeming qualities. That doesn't get us very far, does it, Mark? <laughs> that doesn't work. We've got to deal with this over here, and that's what part of what being complete is, is that, as Scripture also says, above reproach, as elders are called to be. And the idea is, is not that we never make mistakes, but the idea is, is that we're willing to, again, like we talked about last week, get into the deep parts of our heart and say, that's the final frontier, and I'm willing to see what really makes me tick, see what's really there, because that's the transformation that God is looking for from me. And if we do that as a group and as a people, we're transparent and we're willing to look into our own hearts and be complete, then God can do things with us as a group that he could never do with each of us individually. And that's part of why he's given us... Oh, man, that got away from me there for a second. That's part of why God has given each of us spiritual gifts. There's a lot of things that I cannot do, and I don't do well at all. Ask my wife, ask my children. There's a lot of things that I fall short in. Like I've shared before, it is a blessing for you and me that no one has ever asked me to take care of the physical building. That would not go very well. It's a blessing for you and me that I'm not the song leader every Sunday. We have other people that are tremendously gifted in that. It is a blessing for everyone that I'm not called to take care of the cradle class, the little ones. I can do it, I'll survive, but there's people that are so much better. And life goes along that way. And so when we work together, all of these different elements can come together to create something much more beautiful and amazing that each one of us can do individually. And it's beautiful. Joy to the world teaches of that. The third lesson that I learned, and I pondered on quite a bit, is uh, I want to read some things, and I, I spent some time looking at what was happening in the 1830s when Joy to the World was published. And sometimes we have a tendency to look back in history and think, oh man, things were so good back then, but oh man, it's tough now. Things are bad. But I'm just going to read through some of these and make some comments on them. What is happening in the 1830s at the time 
when Joy to the World is published. Just before this, in 1826, there's two former presidents, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, die on the same day. Two of those founding fathers die on the same day, and they were very vocal, which happens to be the 50th anniversary of the approval of the Declaration of Independence. There's a lot of symbolism all through that when both those guys pass away in the same day. But it changes our country because the generation that wrote the Declaration of Independence, the the first generation with all the, the zeal and charisma is gone. And what happens? What is the second generation going to do with what has been given? And so we get into the 1830s. Here's some of the things that start happening. There is a movement called the Second Great Awakening. It is a religious revival movement that changes up the churches as they are known at that point in time. A lot of religious upheaval is happening. There's a stress that is put by preaching ministers on having a relationship with God yourself. You need to figure this out yourself, and you don't... The preacher, priest, whoever is not going to get all this for you. You have a personal responsibility in this. Now, for us, that's not shocking to hear that. For them, this is, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is, I've got more responsibility here than I thought before. And what happens is there's, there's a lot of upheaval in churches trying to figure out how do we do church? How do we, how do we get on the same page? And, and uh, my kids are jumping in with some of this second grade awakening. I'm not sure what I'm, I think about this, and I'm wrestling with it. The Oregon Trail opens up in the 1830s, and it comes to be used by settlers migrating to the Pacific Northwest. There's movement all over the place. There is uh, Nat Turner's Revolt. How many of you are familiar with this? Okay, Nat Turner's Revolt. It's a revolt, some slaves revolt, and kill about 60 people. And the revolt is put down in a few days, but there's some real racial unrest and political tensions there. There is what is called the Petticoat Affair, also known as the Eaton Affair. And basically what it is, is there's some ladies that are, their husbands are in uh, places of power in Washington, and the ladies, it turns out that they have a lot more power than anybody realized. And because they are calling the shots behind the scenes, husbands... There, there's a lot of, a, of a, as they call it, scandal that happens because of it, yeah, because they realize that some of the, the people, again, that were presidents weren't as powerful as they thought they were, as their wives that were making the judgment calls for them. Worcester versus the state of Georgia, the Supreme Court rules in favor of the Cherokees. You may not remove the Cherokee people from their land, their ancestral land. That is illegal. President Jackson comes in, completely ignores what the Supreme Court has to say, and removes them. I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. I'm just going to, that's, that's what's going to happen here. The tariff of 1832 is established. It's a protectionist tariff. Try to, to protect American industry. And boy, there is a lot. There's some states are on, or some colonies are on board. Some are not. Some states are on board. Some are not. And uh, there is, uh, part of the response is, there is an ordinance of nullification by South Carolina. South Carolina comes on and says, we don't care what the federal government does, we're going to do whatever we want. Does that sound familiar, us as Montanans? It's not the first. There is uh, Andrew Jackson, the president, vetoes the charter renewal of the second bank of the United States, bringing into the head the bank war and ultimately leading to the panic of 1837, which was a massive recession that lasted for about a decade and a half. 
huge panic that happens. But what he, he starts off with him saying, all right, I'm going to eliminate the, the charter for the bank. Everything that we do is in the gold standard and, and tries to go back to that. And there's some consequences because of that. There is at Lane Theological Seminary a slavery debate and one of the major, first major public discussions on the topic. So what's happening is you see there's some rumbling under the surface. Is at this uh, seminary or at this Bible college, there's a debate on, wait a minute here, should we as a nation be involved in slavery? Now some states are free, some are slave states. This is, seems like there's something wrong here, something's... Uh, we need to, to sort out. And just down from the Capitol in Washington, D.C., there were big stockades where slaves were brought over from Africa and bought and sold uh, just down the street. 1835, so just a few years after Joy to the World is published, the Mexican president, Santa Ana, annuls the 1824 Constitution, precipitating the Civil War, which spawns the Texas War for Independence. And uh, just a few years later, in 1836, Santa Ana's army defeats the Texas rebels at the Battle of the Alamo, where Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie and and, uh, many others lose their lives there. 1836, the original gag rule is imposed when the U.S. House of Representatives bars discussion of anti-slavery petitions. So there's some representatives that are saying, "Uh, we need to talk about this. We've got some slave issues here. Maybe we shouldn't have slavery. Maybe this is unjust. How can we say in our Constitution that all men are created equal and then we turn around and do something very different in practice? And the majority put a gag rule and said, we're not going to talk about this anymore. It's off the table. Done. Forget it. We're not going to talk about the slavery issue anymore. 1837, Oberlin College begins enrolling female students, becoming the first coeducational college in the U.S., Oh. Panic of 1837 happens, big recession. 1837, again, Charles River Bridge versus the Warren Bridge reverses the Dartmouth College versus Woodward. In other words, property rights can be overridden by public need. Things just continue on. The point I want to bring up here is this, is that when, in the decade, the joy to the world came out and was published... What was happening in the 1830s was spiritual upheaval, political scandals, the abuse of power, racial tensions, disease, economic disaster, gender tensions, military conflicts, controversial taxes, controversial court rulings. Have we changed that much? And many in the 1830s focused on these things and let their lives be consumed by what was happening around them. But just like in any other generation, there's some that saw something different. There's some that are, were able to, to, to get above the waves a little bit and see something different. And say, wait a minute, right over here, and maybe right all around us is something that I had been missing. And some realized that there was a solution to all of this that they had missed somewhere along the line. And the words were popular He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And they realized that the spiritual kingdom that Jesus brought was not in danger, was not in trouble, 
and was still advancing as it always had been since Jesus came. And as I think about the words of and the context in which joy to the world was compiled and when it came together, I sure hope that we will always be a people that help bring joy to the world. We're going to go in and share uh, the Lord's Supper together, and then we're going to sing our way out of here. If you're with us at home today, typically we uh, stop the uh, recording or the, stop the broadcast right about at the end of the Lord's Supper, and we're going to keep it on a little longer today. Uh, we, we don't have the recording set up to, to sing congregationally very well, but we're going to uh, keep it on long enough at least to um, you can participate and sing at home as we sing Joy to the World together. I'm going to be starting this off with a verse we probably all know real well, but 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, Luke has a similar, a similar verbiage when he accounts this Last Supper. And when I, when I read either of these patches, passages ever since I was young, there, something's always stuck out to me, and I don't know why, but it's, it's something that I think a lot about, and that's the remembrance part. Jesus commands us to do this in remembrance of him. And I know at this time, we, we all probably know that, but are we intentional about that? What do we actually remember? Uh, I want to go through some of Jesus' life just some facts about his life and some of those things that we can remember. Jesus was born to a virgin, nonetheless, in Bethlehem, which means house of bread in Hebrew. I thought that was quite significant. At a very young age, Jesus was able to keep up with the Pharisees and talk theology in his father's house. Among all his divineness, he still needed time to himself for prayer and to recharge. Guys, Jesus showed emotion. Jesus fasted for 40 days, of which only three people are noted in the Bible to do that. In that fasting, he knew he needed to make sure he relied on, on our Father's strength and not his own. Jesus raised three people from the dead among more than 40 miracles. An interesting side note, only one miracle is, and that's the feeding of the 5,000 I could find, that was noted in all four Gospels. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Those 30 pieces of silver are worth just $200 today, according to what I could find. $200, our Lord, was betrayed by a man who spent a lot of time and knew who he was. 
Paul writes to Timothy in, in chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus was crucified. And it's, but it's important to remember that crucifixion wasn't abnormal. Jesus may have had a worse torture than others did, but crucifixion was quite common by the Romans. And so that the crucifixion was not what made it unique. Our Lord is who, what made that unique. And who, who was actually hanging on that cross? Jesus' tomb was triple guarded by a huge stone, a guard and a Roman seal that offered the same warning to all that may mess with the tomb could suffer a similar death. Also, that stone is often pictured in a round stone. But in my research, that stone actually was probably more like a cork. And it was wedged into that hole, making it near impossible to move. And it was. It was moved. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus conquered death. Praise God. After his resurrection, Jesus also appeared 12 times physically to others. And Jesus also commands us to be his witness before he ascends in the Great Commission. I found a poem a while back that I really appreciate, and I wanted to read it to you all. If Jesus be dead in the grip of a tomb, there'd be nothing for us but fear and doom. Life would be sad, with no way to cope, death would reign all without any hope. If Jesus be dead in the grip of a tomb, we'd have no future, only dark and gloom. No life after death, no eternity in sight, no hope, no joy, no savior, and no light. But, and aren't we thankful for that but? But thanks be to God, Jesus rose to life. The debt all paid, though sin was rife. His body lay in the tomb three days, then up from the grave his life was raised. Yes, thanks be to God, Jesus rose to life. He conquered death, all sin and strife. To those who believe from death set free, with hope, with joy, their Savior to see. Jesus is a conqueror. He conquered many, many things, but he also conquered death. And as you actually come into this room, I don't know how many notice, but there's a sign above the door that says more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. And I want to read Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. Okay. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors because of Jesus and his love for us. And I, you know, I started this by talking about remembrance. What, what do we remember when we, when, we take the, when we break the bread together and when we drink the cup? What do we remember? We, we talk in, you know, in, in that, uh, the, the account in 1 Corinthians, it says, do this in remembrance of me uh, until his, 
his second coming. But I, I think not only are we remembering the breaking of the bread and, and the drinking of the cup, which symbolizes his blood, we're also remembering that he is a conqueror. And that through him, we are, all, we are more than conquerors, not by our own, not by anything that we did, but because of his love and his sacrifice on this earth for each one of us. Um, I, and so as we, as we pray for the bread, I would, like, I would challenge all of us every week when we partake of this, what do we remember? What do we think about? Who are we really remembering? Um, if anyone didn't get a um, pla- little plastic club, cup yet, just raise your hand and someone will get one to you. Let's pray for the bread. Dear God, I thank you so much for what you did for us on the cross. I thank you for your body that was broken for us, even though we don't deserve it. Um, I just thank you that you said in your word is the joy that was set before you, that you endured the cross for us, even though we certainly don't deserve it, God. I just thank you um, for everyone here. Thank you that we're able to just come together and just learn more about your word. I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, I thank you that we can all come together today safely. I pray that today through prayer we can all draw closer to you. And I thank you for your everlasting love and your mercy. Though we can never repay that, I pray that today, as with every other day, we can do what we can to draw a little bit closer to you, come more into your presence with each other. In your name we pray. Amen. Now is the time when we we include the the giving the offering and on the in the back in the foyer there there's a table with a giving plate on it we're not passing around just because of the happenings of this year um, but don't forget it's easy you know when we don't pass it around I, I think it, it can be easy to forget that and one of the things you know I I think about how Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and and then you know later on thank you Paul talks about how the love of money is the root of all evil the the easiest way for us not to let something whether it be money time things let something get a hold of our hearts too strong that it controls us is to give it away and there's a lot of ways that that we can give but especially monetarily at this time you know, it's important that, that we realize that all those, those funds are given to us from our Lord. That it's a blessing from Him, and He trusts us to be responsible with those funds and our time. And um, it's, it's, it's important that we make sure that, those, that, that the Lord is, is leading us in, those, in those, those decisions with whatever it may be. So let's go ahead and pray for the offering as well. Lord in heaven, we are so thankful for your love for us and for the, the, the gift that we get to enjoy in, in eternal life with you. 
should we choose to follow you and commit our lives to you in, in baptism. Lord, we are so thankful for all the blessings that you give us. None of those deserved. Lord, we are so, especially in this nation, so blessed beyond our wildest dreams in so many ways. And I pray that as we can, as, as we examine our hearts and our minds, that we are mindful of the things and money that we have, that they are placed in the right place in our lives. Lord, that we use them for your goodwill. And Lord, that we know that you don't need our money, but or your money, but that it's it's important and it's a need to help your work continue in so many different ways. The churches and the ministries that we support around the world and the in the ministry that we have right here in our own community. Lord, we love you so much. I'm thankful for this family and their hearts and the steadfastness that they have to continue to give even through these these tough times that we've uh, we may have experienced this year. Lord, I pray that you we give you our hearts and that as Chris talked about it, we always make sure you your your places is in our hearts on the throne leading our lives. Pray that as we we conclude this, Lord, that we are always mindful of you and your love and the blessings that you give to us. We love you and we pray in your son's name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. It seems like if you spend a whole sermon hyping up a song, you should be the one to lead it, but... Let's give this a try. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven, heaven, nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rock hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thrones infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Curse is found far as far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. 
Give us.